give you a little peek into the mind of a pastor. Uh, I've observed Josh. I usually sit right there when Josh is getting ready to preach. And I notice he always gets up during that last song and he puts his, his microphone on. And so I thought, well, I'll do that. I'll wait until the last song to put my microphone on. I'll put the microphone on and then the like, panic come across. Is this thing on? <laughs> and I'm like, well, it'll hurt them. What's it'll hurt me? <laughs> so I went ahead and sang. Before we get started this morning, I'd like for us to pray uh, specifically for Pastor Josh. Those of you who are visiting or may not know, Josh is out of town this week. He went to be with his family in, uh, in North, well, to be with Val's family in West Virginia and spend some time and, and then on over to his family. And he's preaching in his home church this morning. I received a text from him um, just a little while ago. Uh, he is extremely sick this morning. And he is, uh, he, he, unfortunately, he, this happens to him sometimes when he travels. And so he's probably standing in the pulpit now, just like I'm standing in the pulpit here preparing to preach. So let's take just a minute and ask God's blessing, not only on our time together here in the Word and in the worship, but also for Josh as he prepares to preach. So if you will, pray with me. Gracious Lord, we're humbled. And uh, we come to you with a sense of awe every single time that the Word of God is open. And scripture is proclaimed. And Lord, um, we call upon you by the power of the Holy Spirit to move move among us and and, uh, transform lives and change people. Lord, we know that you do that at your bidding and according to your sovereign will. But Lord, thank you for the privilege of being able to do this every week. Thank you for the privilege of being able to do this this morning. I ask, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to receive the word of God. I ask that you would um, clear our minds this morning. And help us to commune with you through your word. Uh, Father, I know that I am a worthless vessel. Lord, the only worth that I have is because of my identity in Christ. And uh, so, Father, I ask that you would use my words in this pulpit uh, for your glory this morning. Lord, I also ask that you would be with Pastor Josh as he preaches in North Carolina. God, I pray that you would fill him with the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would help him to feel better. I pray that you would give him strength from on high. And boldness to proclaim in his home church. This is something he's been looking forward to, uh, not so that he could be recognized, but because he has a burden for the people uh, that he used to grow up with in the church where he was at. And he's anxious to share the, the glorious gospel with them. So, God, I pray that you'd grant him uh, the grace to feel well enough to do that this morning. In all things, God, we pray that you'd move among us in our hearts and our minds with our attention this morning. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. If you will, go ahead and take the Word of God and be opening up to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34 is a continuation of the um, expositional preaching and teaching that we do on Sunday mornings here at First Baptist Church Fairdale. Josh has been systematically working his way through Exodus chapter 34. And it's my privilege to be able to pick up Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 29, and we'll go from verse 29 to verse 35 this morning. I also want to ask you to go ahead and take the Word of God and flip back to the New Testament to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And just put your finger in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is going to be one of those passages this morning where we're going to go back and forth. We're really not going to go back and forth. We're going to spend some time in Exodus 34, but we're going to spend the majority of our time in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 today. And so we'll get to that here momentarily. In Exodus chapter 34, you remember last week, Josh preached the first part of that chapter. And it was all about God renewing his covenant with that stiff necked people, those obstinate Israelites. And showed a picture of God bringing goodness 
into the lives of broken people. That's what God's in the business of doing. That's what if you're here today and you're born again, God brought goodness into your broken life. And that's what he did with the Israelites. And Josh shared with us last week five characteristics that God revealed about himself in this renewal of the covenant, that God is merciful and has compassion, that God has grace, that he's slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he is abounding in truth. It's God giving his people a second chance. And aren't we glad that God gives us another chance? Amen. Actually, he's not giving us another chance. He's making us a different person. But what he's doing is he's taking us from the domain of darkness into the glorious light. And we're glad for that. He did that with the Israelites two weeks ago. Josh preached a sermon from Exodus 33 that was entitled, God, show us your glory. I told Josh when he was finished with that, that's one of the best sermons that I think I've ever heard him preach. He did a fantastic job exposing that scripture. And it was all about God advising Israel, God advising Moses, I will take you to the promised land. I will usher you to the promised land, but I will not go into the promised land with you. I will not commune there with you. And Moses and all the people were broken over this news because they recognized uh, they did not... Uh, desire the blessing of God apart from the presence of God. They didn't desire or want the blessing of God apart from God's presence. And so Moses interceded uh, with God and God uh, vowed that he would continue on with them. And thus the covenant renewal in the beginning of chapter 34. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, that terrific verse that was sort of the, the thesis of his sermon a couple of weeks ago, Moses pled with God to show me your glory. Show me your glory. Now, now that can be taken in some church context today to be some kind of a charismatic, some kind of a visible uh, exploitation or, or, or some kind of a, a view of God that is visible, something that is tangible. But that's not what Moses was asking there. He wanted to see God's glory. And so God hid him. If you remember in Exodus chapter 32, you hid him in the cleft of the rock. Right. While while God passed by and Moses was able to to see the back of God as he passed by, because we know he said in Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, that no one shall see the face of God and live. The glory of God is that great. The radiance of God is, is, is that powerful. And yet being in the presence of God, we saw in Exodus chapter 33, still made its mark on Moses. And today we see where that mark that it made on Moses, that mark that being in the presence of God, communing with God is visible to other people. So I want us to read about that this morning in Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 29. If you will, please stand with me as we uh, show reverence to the word of God through the reading of his word. We're just got six verses we're going to read here. Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 29. If you're ready for God's word, say amen. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses hand while he was coming down from the mountain. That Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. And then Moses called out to them and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him and Moses spoke to them. And afterward, all the sons of Israel came near and he commanded them to do everything that the Yahweh had spoken to him on the Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. 
And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went back in to speak with him. You may be seated. There are three points I want us to briefly examine this morning. I'm going to give all three of those points to you up front. So you'll be looking for them. This is going to be one of those passages that I'll ask you to bear with me a little bit. Um, Jumping from one passage to the other and looking at two passages simultaneously sometimes can be difficult and a little bit challenging. So we're going to take our time going through it. But I want to go ahead and give you the three points so you can be looking, looking for those in the text. Number one, God's glory reflected. God's glory reflected. Number two, Moses' veil symbolized. And number three, our liberty secured. God's glory reflected, Moses' veil symbolized, and our liberty secured. If you look at Exodus chapter 34, try to put yourself in Moses' position here. Try to think how Moses would think as he's coming down from Mount Sinai. Scripture doesn't tell us what he was thinking, so we have to use a little sanctified imagination here. And so Moses is coming down. Moses has just spent 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain in the presence of God. Moses had gone without food and without water. If you look back up at the end of uh, verse 28, it says, So he was there 40 days and 40 nights, and he did not eat bread or drink water. And it says that while he was there communing with God, the, the tablets of stone were completed. And remember, they were, they, were not, um, they were done away with earlier. And then now they're being completed again. And we recognize the tablets of stone as being the law or representation of the law. We would call it the Ten Commandments. And undoubtedly, while Moses was coming down from the mountain, you have to think that he was thinking, how can I relate this to the people at the foot of this mountain? What am I going to say to them? How can, how can I let them know all that I have experienced? I fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights. I've been with Yahweh. Our covenant God, the great I am, for 40 days and for 40 nights, how can I tell them? How can I show them? How can I prove to them? Not that he was trying to prove it to them, but because he wanted to share with them what he himself had experienced. And verse 29 says that while he was walking down the mountain with the tablets in his hand, he was thinking, how could I put into words? But he really didn't have to say anything at all. Because if you look at verse 29, it says that the skin of his face shone. Because of his speaking with him and speaking with him, him capitalized meaning speaking with God. God had taken matters into his own hands. He put a glow about Moses, a radiance about him. His countenance was changed. And it was so radiant, in fact, that that scripture tells us that the people of Israel, including Aaron, were afraid to come to him. Two things I want us to see here about the shining of Moses' face. If you're ready for those, say amen. Let's try it again. If you're ready for that, say amen. amen. The shining of Moses' face revealed two things. Number one, it was a result of Moses' personal communion with God. Is a result of Moses' personal communion with God. Now, um, I taught yesterday at the seminary, and I teach uh, applied ministry, which is practice of ministry, to future pastors. And so one of the things we talked about yesterday was... Um, the priorities in leadership. And, and I was telling them that you need to establish some priorities while you're here and you need to practice those priorities regularly. And the first priority that I shared with those, those guys was you need to practice the priority of personal spiritual discipline. 
And you may think, well, why does a future pastor that's in seminary need that? And I'll use Micah as an example. Micah goes to seminary every day. Micah's textbook is the Bible. <laughs> Micah is speaking with people who have studied the Bible. We pray before every uh, class. We, we take prayer requests. We commune together. We talk about the things of God all the time. Why would a minister need to know that? Because even though you're immersed in the Bible in a, in a studious, reflective manner, you're not spending personal time with God. And yet when you spend personal time with God, when you commune with God at that level, when you meditate, when you pray, when you study scripture, when you meditate, uh, when you memorize scripture, when you experience personal worship, there ought to be something about you that radiates, that demonstrates, that illustrates the glory of God. And not that your face is going to shine like Moses did, because you're not having the same experience that Moses did. But when you commune with God, the glory of God ought to be visible and the, his, his countenance ought to be reflected in your countenance. There ought to be something about you that people be, ought to be able to look and tell that you've experienced God. I know in my own life, Jennifer, who knows me better than anybody on the face of the earth, knows when I'm not having my quiet time. She knows it. Why does she know that? How can she tell? Because there's something about me that's not what it should be. That's not what it is whenever I commune with God. Moses had spent time, dedicated, serious time with God for 40 days and 40 nights fasting. And because of that, his face revealed his personal communion with God. Number two, Moses' face revealed a symbol of God's unmatched glory. A symbol of God's unmatched glory. In the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory of God that we talk about sometimes is often revealed in, in, in God's divine dwelling in the, in the tabernacle and in the tent. We see in Exodus chapter 13, the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. Uh, that is the Shekinah glory of God illustrated. In the New Testament, the Shekinah glory of God is illustrated and demonstrated in one person. The person Christ Jesus, Colossians 2, 9 says, in him all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. Jesus, the Savior, the Christ, was the bodily representation of the glory of God. Verse 32, if we look at Exodus chapter 34, verse 32, after Moses called the people to himself and he told them everything, what, they, uh, what, he had, what God had told him on Mount Sinai, then he placed a veil over his face. And the Bible doesn't tell us what that what that veil looked like. Uh, you know, my Bible's not illustrated. <laughs> I don't get to see exactly what what that did. Was it a, a veil that completely covered his face or did it just sort of kind of mask his face a little bit? And the Bible doesn't give us an idea of exactly what that is. But the passages seem to indicate that it hid most or all of his face. And this started a pattern with Moses that we see throughout the rest of Exodus chapter 34. Moses would go and he would commune with God and he would come down and the people would observe his face. Right. They would observe the radiance of the glory of God on Moses. And then Moses would put the veil up and he would keep the veil up for the remainder of the time until he went back to spend dedicated time with God. Now, when I say veil, the picture that you've got in your mind is probably a wedding veil or a marriage veil. If someone gets married, they're going to come down this aisle right here. And they're going to, their face is going to be covered. And, and all you guys who like to think that and say that you're, you're big and tough and strong and, and you, can, you can stand, you know, you're not emotional when you see that. You're, you're wrong. You really are. I don't know if I've ever told you this story before. When Jennifer and I got married, it was in a sanctuary that's very, very similar to this. Even the depth is about the same. Jennifer didn't wear a veil. She didn't wear a veil. As soon as they threw that, the pastor had told me, the pastor and I were standing on this side down here, and he told me, he said, man, when you see her face, you're going to cry like a baby. 
And I just hit him in there. I'm saying, nah, that's not going to happen to me. Well, guess what? I'm standing here, knees locked, wondering I didn't pass out. They threw that door open, and Jennifer, who didn't have a veil on, come walking out through there, and I was just swooning. If you look at the video, I'm all weepy and stuff. Well, sometimes they wear a veil, and what happens? They keep the veil on. The bride keeps the veil covering her face until she gets up here. And, and usually it's not completely covered, so you can't see it. But she gets up here, and then they lift the veil after she gets up here to behold the person when she gets up here. Moses did it the other way around. Moses came down and immediately revealed to them the glory of God. He wanted them to see the radiance of his face. He wanted them to see that the things I'm getting ready, I've just communed with God. I've just, I've just had time with God. God has showed me and told me some things. I'm going to tell you what they are. And you're going to know it came from God because all you got to do is look at my face. This isn't Moses. This isn't me. This is the glory of God reflected. And so it's important for us to remember when we see something like that, especially here in a minute, when we get over into Second Corinthians chapter three, it's going to be easy for us to pay attention to the veil. The veil is very symbolic in both of these passages, but it's not the main thing. The main point of this is the glory of God, not the veil. The veil symbolizes the glory of God. That is my second point. And if you will, go ahead and turn over to Second Corinthians chapter three. So God's glory was reflected in Moses' face after Moses had spent time with him. And God had shared with him the law. And law, God allowed Moses to bring the law back down to the people of Israel and to share with him what he had said. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. We know some things about the church at Corinth. I'll share that with you because we're just to prepare the context here. Church at Corinth was one of the first churches. Paul had been there. Paul had started the church with the other disciples and they were going through growing pains. They were uh, experiencing different things. The believers there, a lot of them were formerly Jews. And so they were struggling with a lot of the old deeds of the flesh, pride and quarrels, disputes, some of the more serious deeds of the flesh. They were still struggling with sexual perversion. With some immorality. Uh, on the other hand, the ones who were not suffering from the deeds of the flesh were almost at the other end of the spectrum. Because they were formerly Jews. And there was still a, a highly a high influence of, of the Jewish culture through the Judaizers. They were on the other end of the spectrum. They weren't dealing with deeds of the flesh. They were dealing with legalism. They were dealing with ritualism. They were dealing with ceremonialism. They were dealing with trying to continue doing what they thought the law commanded them to do and what they had to do in order to be close to God. And so what that looked like, some of them thought they still had to be circumcised. Some of them thought that uh, they had to observe the Sabbath religiously. They had to celebrate the new moons and festivals. They had to keep the Jewish dietary regulations. But none of those, none of those brought those new believers holiness. Or brought them any closer to God. And I want you to note in verse 7. In fact, let's just read all of this passage. That way you'll have a context for it. And then we'll go back and look at the verses individually. I'm going to walk through them sort of cautiously to make sure we understand them. But just, just real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 beginning in verse 7. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones. So Paul is saying... That the ministry of death is the letters engraved on stone. But if the ministry of death in, in letters engraved on stones came with glory, 
so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. This is what Paul is saying about that. He's saying that God's glory that was reflected in the letters on stone were actually, he calls it in verse 7, those represented a ministry of death and a ministry, a ministry of condemnation. Why would he say that? Doesn't the Old Testament law have value? Wasn't it crucial and critical to the people of Israel? Didn't Moses in Exodus chapter 34, after receiving the tablets and grain, the, the commandments engraved on stone, didn't he come down imbued with the glory of God? And if so, why would Paul look at that now and call those tablets a ministry of death or a ministry of condemnation? The stones that Moses brought down from the mountain represented the whole of God's law. It wasn't, didn't contain the whole law, but we refer to them as the Ten Commandments awfully, uh, often. And God made a covenant with Israel in the Old Testament based upon the law. And by the way, I want you to understand this. Just, just a little, a couple of terms here. I don't, don't want you to be confused. When I refer to the Old Covenant, I'm referring to the Old Covenant of the law. The Old Covenant that, of obeying the law. The Old Covenant of, of surrendering and commending oneself to the law. And the law being the standard that the people lived up to. And so, Moses was saying here, I mean, Paul was saying here, looking back at the Old Testament, that the law didn't have any power to save. It didn't have any power to save. And Israel struggled with that. We see that throughout the New Testament. Israel continues to struggle with that. The law defines God's standard of righteousness. But since no one's able to keep the law perfectly, no one can be saved by the law. I like to say it this way. The old covenant was never meant to, to save and to stay. It was never meant to save and to stay. But what it did do was it drives people to see their need for a Savior. Amen? Warren Wiersbe, Bible commentary, says this, The law is like a mirror that reveals how dirty our faces truly are. But, when we, cannot, but we cannot wash our face with a mirror. We need something else to be made clean. What the law did was it reflected and showed the people, this is where you are, and this is my standard of holiness. But you're not there. But what the Jews did was they felt that they had to continue. That's why they were so rigid. That's why they were so legalistic. They kept pressing and pressing and pressing to be perfect and perfect and perfect. To obtain that standard of righteousness that they could never under any circumstance obtain. In verses 7 of 8, in Second Corinthians chapter 3, Paul pointed out that the glory that accompanied the letters engraved on stone came with the glory that was reflected in Moses' face. Yet that glory was fading. That's why Moses wore the veil. Moses wore the veil to symbolize the passing away, the fading away of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was never meant to save and to stay. But it was meant to reveal to the people of Israel. It is still meant today to reveal to you and I 
Our sin. Our separation from God. Our lack of holiness. In this way, Moses' veil symbolized the Old Covenant and a system that was ultimately going away. Verse 8, Paul asked rhetorically, if the law that's written in letters of stone had glory on it, how much more would the ministry of the Spirit? Meaning the way that you and I are saved by the moving of the Holy Spirit and the conviction that it brings of the sin that is revealed by the law. And the Holy Spirit brings righteousness and produces eternal life and new life in Christ Jesus. And it reveals the glory of God. In verse 9, he asks, if this ministry of condemnation has glory, then how much more? And this is the point. If you listen to me say amen, this is the whole point of everything in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If the giving of the commandments, the tablets of stone had glory, and we know that they did. It's illustrated in the, the, shine, the shine on Moses' face and his countenance. How much more will the thing that's not passing away? which we refer to and we know is the new covenant in Christ Jesus. How much more glory will that have? He's talking, talking to Corinthians who are struggling with sin in their life and trying to be perfect and they're trying to do everything that they can to reach God. But ultimately they will never, ever be able to do that because the law never was intended to do that. In verse 10, Paul goes to the point, he says, For indeed... What had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. And in verse 11, he says, for that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. What he says is the glory that was in the old covenant, the glory that was in the law, the glory that Moses exhibited actually doesn't exist at all. It is so far surpassed by the covenant in Christ Jesus. It is so far surpassed. By coming to Christ through, by grace through faith. It is so far surpassed that the glory that was in the old covenant doesn't even exist anymore. You guys remember a few months ago when we had the supermoon? Anybody go out and see that? I, uh, I'm not big into things like that. You know, I just think it's sort of a marketing kind of for Some people want to make money off of it somehow. And they called it the supermoon. I didn't think anything about it. Uh, you know, the kids went out and looked at it before they went to bed. I don't think I went out. I woke up in the middle of the night. And I noticed it's very light in the house. You know, you groggy when you first wake up. And I thought, well, wait a minute. That's the super moon. That's pretty cool. So at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm wandering out in the middle of my yard. To go out and look at the super moon. It was cool. If you didn't see it, you missed it. I think there's another one coming. I, can't, I don't understand these things. But um, it was pretty cool. It was bright. It's the brightest I've ever seen. Went back to bed. Got up at 630 the next morning. Guess what? Super moon was gone. You know why the supermoon was gone? Because the radiance of the sun made it impossible to see the radiance of the moon. When the sun rose, no matter how radiant the moon was, it was no match for the radiance of the sun. So it is with the new covenant and the old covenant. So it is with salvation and with trying to come to Christ through works. The glory of coming to Christ through saving faith, the glory of Christ. The glory of the New Testament, was, which was initiated, the New Covenant, which was initiated through His death on the cross, His death, His burial, and His resurrection, the glory of that far surpasses anything that could come from you trying to keep the letter of the law. Because I got news for you. You can't do it. I can't do it. No one can do it. The law, the commandments, the Old Covenant could not save the Israelites. It cannot save you. Only coming through Christ. Only surrendering to Him. Only calling out to Him and recognizing your unworthiness and your unholiness and your inability to save yourself, will you be 
born again. John MacArthur, Bible commentator, one of my favorites. He'll be in town in a couple of weeks at the seminary preaching. Wrote, the old covenant prescribed what men were supposed to do and why they were supposed to do it. But it could not enable them to do it. That's what the law did. The law had glory. It was imbued with glory. Moses bringing it down after communion with God. His face shone the glory of God. But what the veil represented was that glory was passing away. And Moses wore that veil. We'll read about it here in a minute in verses 12 through 18. Moses wore that veil so the people would not recognize that. They wouldn't see that glory passing away. When Christ, the far superior representation of God's glory, appeared and died and rose again, the new covenant in him far outshone the veiled efforts of the old covenant. Amen? Number one, God's glory reflected. Number two, Moses' veil symbolized. Number three, our liberty secured. Our liberty secured. Look at verse, verses 12 through 18 of Second Corinthians chapter 3. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. That's what I was talking about a minute ago. The veil was there to hide that, the, 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 that system... That old system, it was fading away. It was never meant to stay. Moses recognizes. Moses, when he went in with the people, we saw this in Exodus chapter 34. He, he came out. As soon as he came down from the mountain, remember the progression there. He came down from the mountain and he allowed the people to see the glory of God. Whenever he communed with God, whenever he, he, he spent time with God, he allowed them to see it. His countenance was bright and radiant. And then he would put on the veil. And he would wear the veil until he went back in again to commune with God. At which time he took off the veil and came out and showed the people of Israel. And that became the progression in the way that that took place. But the reason he did that was because, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul said, so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Verse 14 says, but their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But the veil is taken away. Uh, But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord, the Spirit we know from, from Bible study, one of the great things about being here is that you get, you get the whole counsel of Scripture uh, unashamedly. We don't water it down. You know that the only, person, the only way that a person can come to Christ is through repentance. It's through the new everlasting covenant. It's through surrendering their life to Christ, repenting of their sins, turning away from their sins, and turning to Him and claiming Him and saving faith. In verses 12 through 18, Paul compares the veil that lies over the heart of the unbelievers to the liberty... The liberty that accompanies those of us who come through saving faith. Note, note in, in verses 12 through 18 how Paul's, his tone changes. That word, therefore, you guys know, anytime you see that word, therefore, in Scripture, it, it usually signal, signifies a significant point or a shift in the text. So you anytime, perk up whenever you see the word, therefore. Paul's tone is changing here. He's been talking about the imperfect nature of the Old Covenant. He's been talking about how the Old Covenant can't save. He's been talking about how the Old Covenant is passing away. And as he turns to verse 12, he starts talking about the New Covenant in Christ. And as he approaches 
talking about the new covenant and the liberty that it brings people. He's using terms like hope. He's using terms like great boldness to describe what we have in Christ Jesus. Jennifer and I planted the church in Chicago. We used to, there's, there's areas of 10, there's pockets of every, every nationality and ethnicity in Chicago. I remember us seeing Orthodox Jews. Can I just tell you, they are some of the most miserable looking people you will ever see in your life. And I don't mean, I don't mean the good looking or what, I'm just mean they're miserable. They look as if people who have no hope. Why is that? Because this passage says their heart is veiled. It's hardened. Why is it hardened? Because they're trying to, with perfection, keep the law. That's what they believe. They realize that the only way for them to be perfected is to live perfect. And they try and they strive, but they realize, but just like you do when I say it, there's no way that you can keep every single command of God. And by failing to keep even one, you're condemned. If you're going to try to live a perfect life, friend... If you're going to try to live a perfect life and count on that getting you to heaven, you don't have any hope. Our hope doesn't come in living a perfect life and keeping God's commands. Our hope comes in the new covenant through Christ Jesus. And what Paul is contrasting at the beginning in verses 12 and 13 is the stark contrast to the hopelessness and helplessness that the Jews feel. I remember... I've told some of this before. We met in a Messianic Jewish synagogue, meaning that those are saved Jews. And, and when we were in Chicago, they would celebrate Sabbath on Saturday morning. We would celebrate Sabbath on Sunday morning. And uh, we got to be friends with them. We were sharing the building with them. And uh, some of them would say, and even though they kept some of the religiosity, if you will, which we can debate whether or not they should have done that, whether or not that was healthy. Uh, there was definite change in their countenance from what you would see out of people, Jews who had not been saved. Why is that? Because they experienced liberty through Christ Jesus. Verse 13, Paul reminds the believers in the church court that they are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the people of Israel couldn't see what was passing away. Verse 14, he revealed that even as early as the early church, and even today, like I said, folks, and listen, you guys may know, and it doesn't have to be a Jewish person. You may know people, you may have neighbors, you may have co-workers, people in the cubicle beside you, someone standing on the assembly line next to you, someone working in the shop where you work. And they don't understand Christ. They've never been taught Christ. And I guarantee you, if they haven't, their standard of righteousness, what they think will get them to heaven is by being a good person. I guarantee you that's what they believe. Because that's natural. And they believe that all I got to do is be good enough. All I got to do is be just a little religious. All I got to do is, you know, try to keep the Ten Commandments. Don't kill anybody. Never cheated on my wife. Don't go around lying a lot. Don't covet what my neighbor has too much. I'm a pretty good person overall. That ought to get me to heaven. That's not the right answer. That's the answer of someone who, according to this passage in Second Corinthians chapter 3, someone who has a veil. Over their heart. And whether they realize it or not, they're trying to come to they're trying to come to eternal life and have a relationship with God based on the old covenant, and it can't happen because it can't save them. At the end of verse 16 and all of uh, verse 14 and all the way through verse 16, Paul reveals that the veil is removed in Christ. Let's look at those again. 
For until this very day, the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. Not the law, not the Old Covenant, not obedience, but in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever, listen to this, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That's a picture of salvation, friends. A picture of salvation is the veil that, that, that kept them from coming to God is taking away. We find complete fulfillment, not in fulfilling the law, the old covenant. We find complete fulfillment in the person and work of Christ Jesus. Romans 10, 4 says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's why we sing sometimes up here. Our chains are gone. We've been set free. We sing that because the veil has been removed. And in Christ, the law of righteousness is fulfilled to everyone who believes. He came to fulfill the law. He came to perfect the law. But the law itself can't save anybody. In verse 17 and 18, it says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That's why, listen to me. If you listen to me, say amen. I know I'm still a sinful person. I, I am a man who walks in a fallen world, in a fallen system, and I still sin. And every one of you still sin. But because my relationship is not rooted in some kind of a rigid system of obedience, of legalism. And because I know that Christ will forgive me of my sins if I truly and genuinely repent and turn back to Him, I have liberty. Otherwise, I would be miserable. And you should be miserable. If we thought that we had to keep every law and commandment perfectly, we wouldn't have any hope. But friends... We ought to live like those who have liberty. Now, Paul wrote elsewhere, not liberty to sin, liberty to continue in our lust and in our our worldliness. But we have liberty to live for Him, to pursue Him. And one more thing, this veil that's been lifted means that we don't have to have a Moses to go in. We do not have to have a priest to be a mediator. Christ Jesus is our mediator. We can have direct access to God through Christ. And the veil doesn't exist for us. And the glory of the Lord that Moses experienced by communing with God, you can experience by communion with God through His Word, through fellowship with believers, through worship, through passionate service to Christ. You live out your liberty. We have that hope that Paul's referring to in verses 12 and 13. We have great boldness and we have hope because we're not bound by the shackles of the law, but we're free to live in Christ Jesus. And the glory of God is available to us through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and based on what Christ did for us at Calvary. The glory that is expressed in us inwardly or was expressed outwardly in Moses in the countenance on his face, the radiance of his face. That glory in the life of a believer is expressed inwardly. And this is what this looks like. The working of the Holy Spirit in your life through sanctification begins to conform you and transform you and change you and grow you and mold you into being more and more into the image of Christ. Until one day, you will receive your glorious body, your perfected body. Not because... You've obeyed the law perfectly, 
and kept every rule. But because Jesus died for you. And you came to God through him. And trusted in him. Well, if you listen to me, say amen. Let's close with a couple of quick takeaways. Number one. One of Satan's favorite ploys, one of his favorite schemes, is to make lost people believe that they've got to be a certain way in order to get saved. We say this just about every week. Josh says this when Josh gives the invitation. Notice, he'll say that every pastor should do this, by the way. You're getting ready to give an invitation. You need to tell people the gospel. Amen. And this is the gospel. You're not going to be saved by your works. Satan wants you to believe that. I can't tell you how many people I've counseled, how many people I've shared the gospel with say, well... I'm working through some things. I'm trying. I'm struggling. Just give me a little more time. I'm working on that, Pastor Troy. I'm trying. Just, just let me hang in there with me, buddy. God's getting me there. I'm, I'm working on it. Well, you're never going to get there, friend, doing it that way. You're going to get there whenever you realize your complete inability to do it on your own. When you recognize that keeping every jot and tittle of the law doesn't do anything but show you your sin. It reveals to you your sin, but it'll never save you from your sin. We need to be aware that that's one of Satan's most productive ways of confusing us. Not only that, we need to realize that attempting to come to him through any religious activity, any sacramental activity, will not get you to heaven. Can I tell you something? Listen to him say amen. Being here this morning is not going to get you to heaven. The fact that you walk through that door right there. Not going to get you to heaven. That alone won't save you. Uh, Taking the sacraments. The old covenant was temporary and it was fading. And that type of obedience was never meant to save and to stay. But coming to Christ, trusting in Him, repenting of your sin, surrendering your life, you will be born again. Only coming to God through the person and work of Christ will save you. And then the second takeaway, I think, is this. Uh, Christian, you need to understand that your countenance and your daily testimony reflects your relationship with Christ. And so, looking back at Exodus chapter 34, I, I guess I'd say, and I don't want to overstate this, how radiant are you this morning? Are you spending time with God? Do you count on this? I'm glad you're here. Praise God you're here, right? We need this. We're commanded to gather together like this. But once a week, coming and doing this, you're not going to be able to accurately reflect what God's done for you in one service by coming here. You ought to be daily pouring yourself into His Word. You ought to be daily praying to Him. You ought to be daily repenting of your sins. You ought to be daily seeking Him. You ought to be daily wanting Him to infiltrate every area of your life. And as you do that, you may not, your, face, your face is not going to glow. I mean, you're not going to have the, the countenance that Moses had. But others will be able to see in your life the way that you've been communing with God. And they should be able to see that. One of my greatest fears as a parent, and I fail at this miserably. One of my greatest desires and one of my greatest fears and one of my greatest failures is that my kids see me too frequently not radiating the glory of God. I blow it. I miss it. Christian, God has done for you through Christ Jesus. What you ought to do for Him is spend time with Him, like Moses spent time with Him. And by spending time with Him, that ought to be reflected in the way others see you. Amen?
This morning, I'm going to come down front here in just a moment. Mike is, um, in a moment, Mike is going to come lead us in a song. If you're here this morning and you've tried to come to Christ, you, you've tried to have a relationship with God any way except for Jesus. Being good enough, being obedient enough, coming to church enough, giving to charities enough, helping your neighbor enough, all good things. Glad you're doing them. Not a one of them will save you, though. The old covenant, the way it would have been done. The new covenant in Christ, the glory of it far surpasses the old covenant. And now the only way you can come is to come and to bend the knee, to tell Him you're a sinner. To tell Him that I sin, I don't commit, I don't, I don't follow all of this. I've broken the commands of God. That breaking of those commands has separated me from God, but I don't want to be there anymore. I want God to be the boss of my life. I want Him to rule and to reign over everything that I do. I want to surrender my life to Him. I want to repent of my sins, which is to turn away from your sin and turn to God wholly and completely. And I want to be a Christ follower. He'll take that and begin to radiate the glory of God in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your perfect Word. It communicates what human words cannot communicate. Father, I just ask that if there would be one here this morning who does not know you, that um, through the teaching of your word, they would, they would surrender today. they quit trying to do it on their own and they'd surrender for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.